Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Today, I have the distinct pleasure to introduce to you two extraordinary sustainability experts. One is Jeff Cavanaugh, whom I've known for, for quite some time now. We met at the UN a couple of years ago. He is a junk professor at the Jindal School of Management at the University of Texas at Dallas and vice president and head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute, the research and thought leadership arm of Infosys. And the other guest of mine is Corey Glickman, vice president at Infosys, faculty expert at Singularity University, member of the MIT Technology Review Board, as well as pioneering the World Economic Forum for Global Cities. Thank you both for being on the program and welcome to the Investment Turnaround. Glad to be here, thanks. Very happy to uh, be here also, Mariana. Well, the two of you co-authored a a very new book uh, that is entitled Practical Sustainability Circular uh, Commerce, Smarter Spaces, and Happier Humans. Why did you write the book? And what are the top tenets of uh, it? Jeff, why don't I take this one to start out with? Please. Um, So it's it's very interesting um, to get a chance to to write a book and and the different motivations from it. But to be very direct, um, as I started to look at the role of having to provide sustainability solutions um, as part of my mandate um, in in my role. Um, As I was looking at strategies of how we would do this, it became very apparent that as I got deeper thinking about sustainability, I realized that a book wasn't an option, it was was a must. Um, It was a way to, not just to coalesce ideas, but it was part of a design process as we think about designing systems. It says, how do you take information? Um, How do you not only process it so that it can be used, whether it's by businesses or students um, or the next generation of of sustainability um, thinkers and and movers and shakers, it was also a way of how do you contribute to the the bigger need? So the idea of the book really germinated that started out to saying, well, we needed something in order to be able to create the frameworks to share ideas, but it became something much more as we started to create this. And it was saying that this had to be part of the path and the journey in order to um, um, go above and beyond just business, go above and beyond say just personal achievement, but to actually contribute to a solution that is that is needed. That, that isn't my motivation. I don't know, Jeff, your thoughts? Comes down to that triad of logos, pathos, and ethos. Uh, the science is, is there for us now. The, the, um, the heart, the, the moral compass, I think, is we see some of these uh, opportunities in the environment, socially, you know, governance, inequality, and things like that. And, and then also, just the practicality, the viability of it, because just to feel good about something or to be passionate about something isn't enough to make it so. And after being with the company for over a decade, 
almost 17 years now and seeing the progress we made in certain areas, especially beyond the US where I'm from, uh, places like India and other places to see what's possible and to have a moment where along with Corey who leads the unit and myself and, and my role to be in a position to influence we said, you know what, we had to do this. And then it became a, a journey to see how can we get the research and convert it almost through a crucible to actually share with others so they can actually make the, uh, the changes themselves. So the fact that the head and the heart and the science are behind it, I think uh, that that's really the, the impetus for the this. So what are the top tenets? Uh, because obviously this is a, an extraordinary undertaking uh, that you, uh, you mm -hmm. I mean, you have a certain focus, which is extremely important uh, that we will get to, but can you give our audience the top tenets um, of the book if they yeah. sell the book for us, please? Well, Corp, if you don't mind, I'll just give the 30 seconds and you can dive Certainly. in. This is a wicked challenge, sustainability, let's just say broadly speaking, and for, for business and, and for, for, for society. And so rather than trying to tackle the hardest parts first, much of what we need today and the bigger chunks we can already accomplish. So we talked about smarter spaces, all the technology, all that integration of complex systems. That's a fundamental part, over 40% of greenhouse gas emissions, for example, come from the construction and operation of buildings. So smart spaces and these digital systems are important. Number two, the, the circular supply chains, this idea of not being so wasteful, that's also something that's very prominent in business. So those areas uh, are, are, I wouldn't call them low hanging fruit as much as they're right there in front of us. We know how to do it, we have the technology and we have some of the underpinnings in place that go beyond efficiency. So. Digital twins that marry the physical and the digital. The, the idea that there are applied systems design, these are complex challenges. And then lastly, that the human needs to stay at the center of all this as the why. So the experience people get both for their safety as well as their fulfillment, those are important. Over to you, Corey. Uh, I, I think that's very well stated. I, I think what I would like to add to this is you know, why do we call it practical sustainability? Um, and, and, and there's really two tenets to that. Um, the first being, we believe, and I think there's um, definitive proof that not only does society understand the mandate and, and the longevity of, of what this need is. So we know that the need is going to be there. Um, and even if we don't know all of the technologies at this point, we know many of the technologies that can directly impact um, across there. Um, and we also know that culturally, it, they will be accepted. So whether that happens at a government level or that happens at a uh, business level or um, at an individual level, we know the momentum will stay there. Uh, secondly, why we call it practical sustainability is much of what we're talking about has deep roots in science and you have to have empirical proof um, in order for technology to work and to have real quantitative measurements take place. However, the ability to create frameworks and formulas that can be more widely dispersed by many, right? They may not have to have the complete deep science knowledge, but if they can have access to formulas or to patterns or to frameworks, 
you suddenly open up the world to um, invention, um, to innovation, um, and to and to investment. And you will find um, individuals that are um, deeply scientific or deeply educated or deeply established in their uh, given professions across their being very effective in sustainability, but you will also find, you know, younger advocates or individuals that might be um, very good at what they're currently doing, be it in technology or being in finance or being in government and policy that maybe don't have that deep science knowledge. But if we give them the tools, they can be very, very effective and bring that side of this also to here. So, you know, as um, we like to say here, when we look at emphasis, and we're very fortunate to be in a journey where we've been um, negative uh, net neutral carbon for two years now. Um, it was a 10 year journey for us that we started in 2008, where we planned it. Uh, we actually started to activate it in 2010. And by 2020, we have been able to reduce the carbon and do all the right metrics across here. I always say that if we could do this in 10 years based off the technologies um, that we had to work with then and what we have with now, companies that are setting dates for 2040, 2050 out there, we'd like to challenge them. We believe that if we could do it in 10 years, what we know today, why can't you do it in seven years or, or in 10 years like we did? So we're trying to make these practical aspects. The last point that I'll say on this, um, reinforcing what Jeff was saying, you know, we chose specific areas because it's a very broad area. But if you can look at the built environment, if you can look at commerce, circular commerce, and then if you can look at um, the human element components, you can solve that first 50% um, relatively quickly with a good return on investment. It's that next 20% um, or 30% that is a bit more difficult to go through and that'll take longer. And it's that last 20%, which will just be an ongoing approach. So really the goal of tenants is to say, how do we get to that first 50% and get our way onto the next 30% very, very quickly. Right. So I, I couldn't agree more with you um, when it comes to the importance of uh, scientific research uh, to back up the claims that, uh, you know, everyone is trying to uh, to make these days, particularly now that, you know, most people have understood the importance of, um, of what we call circular economy to which we will get. What... Um, how did you conduct this research and how did you identify the areas that are most important that should be fo we should be focused on, focusing on, should I, I should say, within the next 10 years due to the fact that scientists tell us that we only have 10 years to switch our systems toward more sustainable ones that, uh, yeah, that would en enable humanity to thrive on the planet. In other oh, words, well, going back to the planetary boundaries that uh, we're, we have left. Corey, why don't I take the emphasis perspective? Absolutely. And you take the external. Okay. Um, starting in 2006, my first trip, uh, the, the parts of emphasis, and was fortunate to start working with and, and interacting with the people who are doing this. You know, 50 million square feet under climate control is a pretty damn large laboratory. And fortunately, like Corey said, even as far back as 2008, 2009, started to instrument and measure. Of course, not quite where we are today, but just keep measuring. In fact, in some cases, we put up two buildings, one the old way and one the most advanced energy efficient way. Uh, there'd be social programs, instead of purchasing offsets, for example, working with biogas or some, some kind of social uh, non, you know, nonprofit to help help others. And I highlight that because 
it's all been data driven. You know, as a tech company with a consulting arm and then with with a with a penchant towards delivering on time on budget, transferred those types of um, disciplines to the built world, to construction, to uh, commerce, and even social programs. And the fortunate thing about collecting data is it, it allows you to, to derive insights. Isn't just hypothesis or isn't just uh, anecdotes, plenty of anecdotes along the way, but there's enough there to have trends. So we had a big enough Petri dish or big enough repository and laboratory ourselves over a longitudinal, you know, a long enough time that we were able to be conclusive. Uh, and also we were fortunate to have about a billion dollar unit 15,000, I call knuckle dragging engineers, you know, doing hardcore engineering and software and um, mechanical, electromechanical. So we were able to actually look at the engineering side of it. You know, we were able to do that ourselves and it wasn't just some, some third, second or third party data. So as a result of that, for several aspects of sustainability, supply chain, product development, design, green design, packaging, as well as the whole built environment, uh, you, you know, smart buildings and, and, and the effects of that, we're able to actually have our own primary research. And then we couple that, turn it over to you, Corey, with an external view as well. Yeah, so it, it's very um, you know, interesting when we start looking at the, the external view. And I think that there's um, sources that we know that are more industry um, standards that generally either result in indexes or um, such as um, you know what the WEF would put out, uh, or perhaps what the UN and, and and many of the standards come across there. But there's also specialty indexes that we see are unique. So, for instance, one of the programs that we're involved in is with um, MIT, and what's called the, the Blue Tech Index that we're, we've created, which is really the largest um, um, true index on looking at oceanographic economics and, and the impact of biodiversity. And, and this has become very relevant over the last year, especially with supply chain and how much commerce goes on the ocean. So there's this constant um, set of indexes that are standard. And then there are these newer ones that are being identified as, as we, um, as a world economy recognize um, what we have to know more data about. Because if we don't have data, we can't, have measurements. And if we don't have measurements, um, it, it's very, very hard to prove anything, both quantitatively and even qualitatively across there. And then there's, there's another source. Um, many organizations that have um, done some wonderful work, um, whether they're at the community level or some of the tier one um, you know, major players have made significant investments in both, um, say, geospatial technologies or understanding, you know, how their supply chains work, they've done a good job of documenting um, how this goes. We found that um, these players are very open with sharing with how they're doing things and um, understanding how these data constructs are working um, through there. I think one of the big challenges with this all, though, is starting out to recognize what are the standards. Right? We try to belong to as many um, organizations that are widely recognized, such as the UN, such as the WEF, some of these major um, academic institutions and, and, and government entities, because we feel that the standards have to work at a global level and that we have to be able to have metrics that we recognize globally across here. So getting access, um, I think people are still trying to find out how they can commercialize it. 
Um, and sometimes, you, you know, you have to make decisions on, on where you go across there. But majority, like when we did the book, um, we have over 340 sources you know, that we were able to um, work with in order to um, support our narratives and um, the messaging and the frameworks that we've come across there. And those um, um, partners have gave us complete access, right? Very freely, because I think there is that higher mandate that says we have to get this right. Um, we have to make this information available across there. Of course, the big challenge is like any other data set, it's a big data problem. And how do you sort through that data and how do you find what is relevant? And this is where um, I know Mariana yourself is an expert in artificial intelligence. This is where tools like AI and, and machine learning and future things to come um, really help. And when we talk about digital twins, um, often, this is how we think about it, right? Digital twins are that expression of how can we understand data and anomalies in, in ways that we can um, comprehend and share. Yeah, so what makes the, uh, the book, Practical Sustainability, distinct from what is typically covered by academia or, or the press? And so, and, and how, what are the three most important things that people would find in the book that they wouldn't find anywhere else. Go ahead, Corey, and I'll compliment. Okay. So I think that um, what people will, will find in the book, what makes it, what makes it special is, is a couple of areas or what makes it unique. Uh, first of all, it is very specifically targeted to be able to deliver key frameworks, once again, that are, are very doable and, and achievable across um, a wide group of um, uh, potential users is really focused um, for, for businesses, it is focused for that next generation. It's got a key target in, in academia. There's been a, you know, a, a high interest across there. Um, we also know that it's a cultural change agent that this is a way of taking almost any individual who will be able to um, be able to read and, and understand this. And we made a conscious decision when we wrote this book um, that would it be something with deep research um, and, you know, like a heavy, a heavy manual equivalent to uh, Julia Child's, you know, art of French cooking, or would it be something that um, can be more about narratives and links to areas? And we felt that, at this stage of evolution of where companies are and where we were in our own journey, it was better to go with known capabilities and things that worked. Um, and what we've heard from, you know, over 30 experts and many companies that we've worked with to say, these are tactical, practical things that will take place and to share those frameworks um, the deeper research part, um, there are links to that, and we see this, there'll be a continuation, but we tried not to put that all inside this book because it would have been a three or four year project, I think, to do that properly. So the real idea of this um, book was to say, if I had to understand what sustainability means, if I had to understand um, you know, what those terms are, if I would wanna understand the important concepts around you know, ESG and finance or understanding how important is the built environment or how important is a circular economy, um, 
I could get those concepts. And then there's also some, I think some deeper areas that we went into. Um, we focused also in um, areas such as, as um, systems design as a way of logically thinking through a problem and, and how would that work? We talked about how do you see value and realization and we have a very heavy specific focus on, on the built environment just because it has such an impact um, through here. And we do have a chapter on implementation. So we just didn't want it to be you know, good things to do or how to think about it. But actually, if tomorrow you said, I need to get started, where's those areas? What are some toolkits that I can use? And what are the links? And what are the case studies coming across there? Um, going to the second part of, of your question of saying, you know, the three specific, um, you know, areas, it's right in the title. You know, when we started to, to look at this uh, whole idea of sustainability, we had to make some decisions around the frameworks. And we very specifically focused, first of all, on this whole idea of the built environment and smarter spaces. Um, we spend um, just under 90% of our time in buildings. Um, and we will continue to do so. And I think cities and buildings have always represented, you know, where um, we work and where we live. And they are, as Jeff said earlier, they account for 40% of the um, greenhouse gas emissions from both the built and the operations across there. So doing your buildings is not just important, but it's also very feasible because buildings have this unique um, situation where they're very measurable, right? You can't build things without codes. The, the regulations are already there. They, they have to be constructed in certain ways. But buildings have always been up to now a laggard in compared to other sprints of technology. So if we think, you know, the amount of intelligence in say a smartphone compared to what's in a building, there's more in a smartphone. So the ceiling is unlimited. Uh, sorry for the pun about buildings, about this should be the world's largest network of connected things. When we talk about the 50 billion connected objects, uh, this is what we're talking about that, that happens across here. So we all use buildings. So buildings is a very tactical area for us. The second is around the circular commerce area. Um, we have to have good commerce. We have to have new models come out there. We have to have supply chains that work through here. So being able to understand supply chains that use less waste, um, that have um, loop systems that allow for reuse of materials, um, that start to use data even more effectively and in a more responsible way. It's another area that because it is how businesses will be run, we know that there will be adoption and therefore through that adoption, there'll be more sustainability coming across here. And then the third part, um, as you talked about, is the human element. Um, I think it's become very um, obvious to us, especially with what's happened with COVID over the last couple of years, that no matter how much technology um, that we have and how we might measure our economies, um, we're still part of a biology and of an ecosystem. And we have to respect that. And ultimately, um, you know, how we choose to lose up, use our lives um, and how we um, tend to um, make our decisions. If humans, if the human element is not going to move along with this, then none of it is going to um, succeed for us. Jeff, would you like Jeff? to add to that? Or shall I, uh, shall I yeah. go to the next question? Real, real quick, another dimension. Who would use this? Imagine if a leader, could be a CEO, could be an executive, commissioned 
a study on how sustainability will work in their company, this hopefully will be a tremendous jolt and jump start. This was written for a leader to get something done. Number two, for someone, let's say in the trenches, uh, what can they do? How can they make sense of it? Uh, and then finally, there is a practical sense that for a financial person to say, yeah, this sounds really good, but I don't want to do it at the expense of next quarter or the next six months or economic power. We're showing them you don't have to choose one or the other. There's a duality here. And we took the essence so that those common elements can be done now. Otherwise, you could say you're quote unquote right, but still be in the same place two years later while you argue about why we haven't gotten started. So those three aspects, is that's why the word practical is the first word in the title. Brilliant. So let's go to dig deeper into, you, talk, you talked about this circular economy and sustainability in general. Uh, so can you please give me or us a definition of both, of what, what does sustainability mean to you um, within the context of the book, what I, you know, what kind of what is sustainability in your in your definition, and the other is how do you define circular economy given the fact that less than six percent of the uh, materials material input are indeed recyclable, which of course uh, means a lot uh, from the perspective of um, of construction of the construction business. So Jeff, why don't I start with this one? And then if you could um, add your thoughts to this. So first, um, let's take the, the question of what does sustainability mean? And, you know, for us, it, it is the, uh, the E and the environment, the, the social and the governance. And, and we, we look at all three of those aspects through here. And once again, it's a system, right? Because they all have their, their, their own dynamics. And it's at a, at a high level, you know, when we talk about practicality, when we think about the environment, you know, one of the first areas that we can look at is saying the assets themselves, how can they either be produced in a less carbon-free, um, you know, way and also produce less carbon is, is, is really important um, through here. Um, so in their operations in life, um, how do those physical assets um, are able to um, have less of a carbon footprint or move towards more of a, a carbon neutral and then to a net carbon zero if possible through technology um, from a this also goes with digital assets right so as we know much of the world you know runs off of the software along with the physical asset aspects um, assets aspects and for us this is around um, what i call sustainable transformation so we all have digital transformations that we've been working on for five or six years now but now the sustainability agenda is around um, how do we use these systems of record and data um, and do our digital aspects in a sustainable fashion, whether that's green IT or whether that's understanding, you know, the um, both the growth of servers and cloud and the impact that has on greenhouse gases and how do we start using technologies to um, rethink, you know, what does that mean across there? Um, in summary, with the digital and with the physical assets, it is really about how do we take quantitative measurements um, as much as possible and being able to act across those and 
when we start looking at the social aspects and sustainability, whether that is um, you know, the aspects of workplace rights or health and safety, um, um, quality and justice, those tend to be more qualitative in fashion. And they're part of that solution of human element. And we look to move this into a quantitative state also through putting this into systems of records and into systems of, of measurement. And then there's the whole governance aspect. Um, we do a lot of work um, with um, several governments, um, not just with India, but um, with some of the Nordic countries in particular right now, where we're helping saying, how do we take an entire country down to a, um, both a carbon neutral status within you know, a certain time frame, and also how to build their economy. So we're dealing with the regulatory issues and we're understanding you know, how does decarbonization take place um, or how does societal, societal cultural change take place and these become part of these systems that we need to um, um, design, which is why we use systems thinking. Um, before I go into the circular economy, Jeff, did you wanna add anything to that um, thought process? There's a textbook definition, but in reality, it's, it's, it's a page from, from what you, you say quite often, Mariana, about implementing SDGs, sustainable development goals within planetary boundaries, that there are individual goals that taken together, you've got to work within this feasible area, you know, this emotional desirability, technical feasibility, and, and economic viability. Because if you violate any of those and go too far off, no one's going to do it or it can't be done. Um, and so for us, yes, there's an efficiency, a replenishment, a regenerative, all those good adjectives. In the end, take what we can do now. Because even with the even the 6%, I might push back a little mm -hmm. bit if we if we add some other forms of capital in there because with humans, for example, reskilling and upskilling and viewing humans uh, as an asset, I don't mean it in a, in a bad way, in a very positive organic way, a lot is possible because when people can renew their skills, provide for their families, be responsible citizens, have more quality, more contribution to society, a lot of the other things that get in the way start to recede. For example, I remember one quote whenever we were together at the UN, International Day of Women, Girls in Science, and that research that was showing that more educated women, especially in developing countries, meant they wouldn't stand for some of these governments or you know, more authoritarian regimes. So that's one example of a regenerative answer from ESG standpoint coming from investing in human you know, the human sustainability aspect. So I know it's a little more of a stretch than the hardcore assets we're talking about, like supply chains and that kind of commerce. But I do think we can bend the arc and we'll get to the more on the finance type um, aspects in a moment. But go ahead. So if we go into the um, idea of, of, of the circular economy uh, components, so um, we're members of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation for, for, for two years now and um, work quite closely with them. And it's really interesting to see the trends um, that they're able to um, communicate across there. And I think that we've seen a, um, you know, a market difference in say tier one uh, players, you know, the, the very large companies like the Unilevers um, and so forth that have made really important investments and strides, you know, to, to lead the way to say, this is what can be done. You know, these are 
things that we're able to um, take across everything, once again, from like geospatial data to understand emissions down to how does that supply chain work and how do we, you know, really rethink across there. Um, and then there's the aspect though that we all face that when you get to tier two and tier three players, because this is also, you know, they may not have the resources and they may not have the uh, technology at, at this point that will economically allow them to survive, you know, of what's going on, especially what's happened with COVID as business has been challenged through here. So it all has to take place. But the challenge is, is that when you get to that circular supply chain component, I think the definitions of saying, or the concepts that says, if I put less waste in, right, I could get less waste out. If I can have um, more, um, um, you know, complete loops that understands from not just a um, idea that it's about production and consumption and then price and schedule, but also from the very idea that when I start something, I'm going to think, how is it going to be reused? And how do I perhaps make some, some trade-offs because there's, there's benefits, whether it's triple bottom line or whether it's single bottom line sustainability that says that I can be profitable and I can create an economy and I can bring all those other aspects you know, to society um, by creating these, these um, circular economy loops. I think we understand those concepts. I think the technologies are there. But it's like moving a large, you know, ocean liner <laughs> thing, you know, it's, it's, it's moving down there and there's not just a matter of re-engineering or rethinking your whole supply chains in a very challenging time right now. Um, but you have to economically survive it at this point. And you have to say, if I'm going to do this, how do I get those tier two and tier three suppliers to be able to also participate? I think at the first level, they can do it through information sharing. Um, but we also know that with privacy of data and that there's so many disparate systems out there, there's a lot of work that has to be done, but it's a solvable thing to come across here. I think that there's also the, you know, there's a large difference of what kind of um, organization or company or business that you have, say a company that is like ourselves, which is very digital based and many banks are like this also, it's easier to do digital assets and, and make these, you know, close up things but if you're a large materialistic company that has you know many aspects of, of carbon and products and chemicals across there they're never going to be carbon free it's it's, it's just technically impossible um, and it is a lot harder um, challenge for them to make these um, these circular economy um, aspects take place but they're the ones that are ultimately going to make this work um, this is where a lot of the innovation is going to take place but where people can start um, on this is if they think of their product design from the beginning, from day one saying, how can I track carbon? How can I look at the energy that I'm putting in here? What happens to my product along the way? Can I make it last longer so it doesn't have to go, you know, be rebuilt into the system? Can I look at servitude more and, and move my model, um, not just from physical product and transaction, but to actually have services that, um, elongate and change the model that says the value is now not just the physical product itself, but it's actually the value and the attributes that it delivers to you as a service. It will start to impact how people think about what their supply chain needs to be. And it will start to um, streamline what actually has to take place in a supply chain. 
Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Corey and, and Jeff for explaining that the the reason why I brought up circular economies uh, because I take issue with the name uh, because we don't live in a circular world. Uh, you know, we evolve. Everything evolves. So I think that uh, that's why I'm I'm I have adopted the integral um, consciousness model because yes. a, a circular economy should be replaced with a spiral evolutionary economy. It's iterative. Um, You're correct. Um, and uh, so that's why I think I, I I think it's just like I don't want to be called a consumer. I mean. If we want to shift to a sustainable economy or whatever name we give it to it, integral economy, I don't care, then uh, we need to, to be careful with the names that we're using, with the, with the language that we're using, right. because it has a, a huge impact onto everything that we do and how we show up in the world. Um, and so with that, I would like to get back to, uh, to Corey's uh, third um, and what I think is uh, one of the most important points um, with respect to the adoption of uh, such progressive and evolutionary models like, uh, like, uh, yeah, like yours. Uh, and I'm thinking of the cultural Asian aspect, the mind shift. Um, and uh, so maybe you would like to, to tell me something about um, the, you know, go into more detail and um, maybe along with that use some sort of metrics that would help the cultural change agents know us that we're actually making progress and how do we know that and then i'd like to continue with uh, regulations and what it means for uh, from a perspective of uh, of an investor to uh, subscribe and adopt and adapt, you know, SFDR being one of the European challenges that we have right now with respect to the taxonomy and others. So please, if you could say something to work uh, to, with respect to the culture agents and, um, and uh, the mind shift aspect in your book. Go ahead, Corey. No, oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, one of the, I think the fourth chapter of the book, if I remember right, is that we talk about the, the human element. And, you know, we, we, we brought that up very, very, very quickly. Um, this idea of understanding um, that we've known for a while in many of our aspects of technology or how we um, think about this even prior to a focus on sustainability, that technology was always trying to look at saying, how will humans adopt, right, these things? You know, as Jeff was saying before, you know, if something doesn't have a, a viability from a business perspective, if it doesn't have a feasibility from a technology perspective, um, it's not going to work. But also, if it's not going to be adopted, if, if, if humans are not going to um, pick this up, then it's, it's, it's not going to work, right? So I think we've all have been trained um, as consultants or as technologists um, or as business leaders, uh, regardless of where you're from, to really start looking at um, the human component of this through here. And with sustainability in particular, because it has such a, a, a huge impact on our very health and well-being and how we are going to be living in our cities um, and in our other areas uh, through here, the human element has a huge, huge impact, not just as the outcome, but also as the influencer. 
people will decide, you know, which services, which businesses, which companies um, they choose to, um, you know, go on based off of what the performance or what the brand perception of the uh, services they go with. So having said that, um, there are lots of tools and frameworks that says, this is how we understand how to map, how people think about things, how they would like to experience um, um, an interaction um, in, in, within a system here. So um, I'll give you an example. So if we were to take, um, create a service map for um, say healthcare, uh, there could be say three variants. So within a healthcare system, it could be a hospital experience. It could be an experience in um, going with a pharmaceutical company, um, working in a factory. It could be something to do with how do you get your insurance uh, through here and how that individual is treated, whether they are, you know, in a hospital and, you know, how is that service taking place and are they getting proper care? There's ways to map to make sure that all the technology and all the processes will work well for them. If you are working in a pharmaceutical company and you're using technologies to come with the next, you know, vaccine sets, how do the factories become more automated? Um, how can research be conducted? How can information be shared? How can I comprehend all this? There are things that you'll design in a system in order for humans to not just um, take advantage of technology, but to be more productive as they come across there. And then if you're saying in insurance, the whole idea of saying, how do I get the coverage? How do I able to access my benefits? How do I am able to deliver those systems upon the provider? So in a way that is economically feasible, but also um, will cover the needs of what's, of what's happening here. So they all have different parts of, of human mapping that we need to, to take place across here. Um, I think humans more so than ever um, have understood whether it's through the explosion of social media, whether it's been through a higher level of education, um, whether it's because um, information just travels so much, um, they have a much more active voice and we hear news so quickly across here. And I think COVID has really magnified this, so that we understand now that um, regardless of where you are in the world, you're going to hear about things and you're going to know that what you do and your decisions that come across are actually um, going to have impact um, through areas. So I think people are very empowered um, at this point. So designing systems, it's, it's kind of an interesting paradox. As we become more technology enabled and more with AI and, and, and machine learning and other aspects, things become more automated for us, right? Um, and that's just a natural evolution of technology. But as a society, we're probably being more challenged than ever before to say, what does it mean to be human? And so this idea of having a human voice and having systems that work with us and for us as opposed to um, just delivering across there is really important. So using human factors, understanding um, concepts that Don Nelson and uh, you know, Norman and Nelson, sorry, I'm getting their names mixed up here about you know, the design of everyday things that you know, really came about you know, a couple of decades ago. Those principles hold very true for us right now. And um, 
we continue to make sure that the human element is at the forefront across here. I guess the last thing that I would like to say, um, at least this part, and then I'll hand over to you, Jeff, is it's more than just creating the experience, uh, but the sustainability um, agenda um, and transformation is a mandated opportunity as we rethink not just our economies, but how we are as a, as a society. And we ourselves, as we look at the workforce issues out there and, and you know, how people choose to select their jobs, we've recognized that part of understanding sustainability, especially from the social aspect, is it's no longer a world that says you can only, you have to have a certain level of degree, you have to have a doctorate, or you have to have a master's in order to be productive and to be able to solve things. The fact of the matter is, is that you can have many kinds of level of education um, that can be very, very productive through here. And that sometimes it's, it's not sometimes, almost all the time, it's not just a conscious choice that says, why do I only have a two-year degree uh, versus a four-year or a six-year degree is not maybe um, just an economic choice. It's a societal choice. And that you just might not, certain cultures or certain um, economies, environments would not allow these very important and um, impactful individuals have the opportunity to um, not just contribute, but to create new economies in their own communities um, if they're given the chance, if their training takes place here. So we have set up programs ourselves um, through our foundations that really focus on what we would say the underserved um, through either economic um, you know, issues or other things that says with some training, with some exposure, um, that they can not only be very productive, they can become leaders and that will then cause a flywheel effect within their own communities and bring this whole new generation of um, what it means to be a thought leader. It's very much what you were saying, Marion, about being a spiral. It's not a circular loop. It's not a closed club. It's how do you enable this to take place? Well, I think oh, I'll say is yeah, one thing, Jeff, please. Mas Maslow, think Maslow and apply it to the human experience. Sustainability isn't just about feeling good and it's self-actualizing. It's about basic things. Am I safe? Am I healthy? Can I go into this building? Do I have the data? Uh, of course, there's the safety, their physical safety with, with a lot of the you know, violence and everything, as well as the health. You know, COVID really brought this to light. Uh, one example, we're working with a major developer, a good percentage of downtown Manhattan, for example, in office buildings. And having to think through, how do you open a building up? How do you make sure it's safe? How do you let people get the confidence? So Maslow's hierarchy applies for sustainability, just like it does in, in other parts of life. So go ahead. So given the fact that we only have seven years to set our systems up in such a way that we, uh, you know, we go back to a safe operating system of the planet, how do we accelerate uh, this transformation from uh, from a cultural um, change change agent perspective, particularly through big organizations, and given the the inertia uh, of uh, and the reluctance of people to want to change, because if it were easy, sustainability has been around ever since Brundtland uh, brought it, uh, uh, you know, put it into the public sphere. sphere. And we haven't accomplished much. The opposite is the case. So how do you think that um, 
practical sustainability will accelerate this process uh, in an exponential way so that we can reach that goal of addressing the human factor and move fast uh, up the uh, Maslow pyramid? You want to take it's a great steps, question. <laughs> go ahead, Jeff. Jeff, you can go first this time. I was just going to say, although seven years, eight years, you know, whatever the number is, is critical, we also have to start where we are. And if for some reason it took six years or nine years, the fact is we get to do something. And the good news is we took a hard look at that and said, what can people do? And of the thousand things you can do, there are six chunks. First of all, get specific on sustainability, have a plan. Look at your built environment, do the things you know you can and should do. Use the, uh, the power of IoT and use all the technologies in, in your favor, collect the data, make some sense, sense and respond and, and act on it. So sustainability is a plan. Next, and this is important, with all due respect to the triple bottom line, we need a single bottom line of sustainability because you can't have the sustainability people off in some other room doing good things. It needs to be in the middle of the business and affect the core of your business. So embed it in your plan. You have the plan. Next, you optimize these physical and digital assets. Don't wait, do it now. And because buildings are such a big culprit or such a big factor, even these very uh, material intensive companies can still make a big impact. Because remember factories, factories are a big contributor for this. Next, address beyond those nodes, those factories across the supply chain. Maybe you localize manufacturing, you localize prosumption, consumption. You can, you can with solar can, you know, can, uh, contribute energy back to the grid or all these different aspects across the nodes, the integral supply chain, let's call it. Next, have a specific, sophisticated strategy for carbon offsets. Literally, how are you going to offset, not just by purchasing a bunch of trees or, or other offsets, but actually doing good outside the company for the scope two and three uh, emissions. And finally, embed the culture. And this idea of micro changes, work with behavioral psychology. Understand that people respond to nudges like a ratchet, click, 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 and don't go back. Every positive step forward, you move it. You don't have some big bang from zero to 100. You, you go through a series of clicks. It could be every two weeks, every six weeks. By doing that, it's not imperceptive, but it's small enough changes. People aren't asked to make a leap of faith every single time. And yet, in a fairly short period of time, they can make big change. Those are the six big steps we've seen and we've tested ourselves. Corey, if you wanted to add. Yeah, I think it's really well said. There's just a, a couple of points I'd like to add. So if, if we take those six steps, I, I think there's the, the roots to all four of these to work. Um, one is around data, right? And, and we, I think, understand enough about data and technology. Although it's different kinds of data now, it's, it's still a big data problem. And we have ways of, of looking at data and understanding those measurements going across there. The second has to do with your technology decisions on your physical and your digital sides. The third has to do how will the finance work, the sustainable financing, because that's going to be the engine that's going to enable these seven years to come across there. Those mechanisms have to come in place. And then the fourth is, is the cultural aspect. I think what is going to be key uh, through here is that you will find, and we're seeing this right now when we came out of COP26, 
there's a large global government regulatory component to this, right? And that has to happen because for large programs of scale, that's how you're able to um, achieve standards that will be recognized, you know, at a level that will have impact. If you don't solve it for everywhere, um, it's not going to work uh, through here. But at the same time, you can't take the innovation away from companies or individuals that can move maybe much more quicker or have additional resources. And there's interesting challenges that, that come with this. So I believe that this combination of both public and private policy um, relationships um, are going to be key to this. So I'll give you an example. If we think about where you would want to decarbonize from, one way that we can think about decarbonization with energy um, through um, new kinds of energy transmission is you could say, well, that resides with the energy provider. And in many places that is you know, government regulated and some kind of public concern across there. But if you put decarbonization that side, you know it will happen because it comes out of the source, it's regulated, um, it's measured, um, and it will happen at the speed that things happen across there, but it will happen. If you put decarbonization, for instance, though, at the um, private uh, company level, uh, they might be more innovative, right? You could take a Tesla or a Nextera and they might have some very brilliant ideas that say you know, we have the investments and we can go ahead and actually you know, drive more innovation and, and cause change to happen quicker. But the challenge would be they will now have access to the types of information that traditionally private companies haven't had. You know, uh, around whether it's individuals or cities or you know government level across there, so it will be a combination of the two. The good thing is is that the there's a model out there. We look at SpaceX, right? If if we think about space flight, you know, up until ten years ago, we assumed you know entirely as a society that large programs like space flight could only happen at the government and military level in order for these programs to to take place and actually be funded and achieved. Uh, once it became into the private market, we quickly saw the next generation of ideas and um, the expansion of not just technology, but also how spaceflight is perceived and where the commercial capabilities are. And now we're seeing governments working with these private institutions to accelerate their own programs because that's where the funding will take place and it just tries to drive that economy. I believe we'll see the same thing with sustainability um, coming across there. It will be a combination of those two. And that's how I think we'll get to the seven years. Hallelujah. Um, let's uh, hope that that will happen. Uh, and I hope that there will be many, many Elon Musks and uh, billions of dollars and investors who support such thinking um, to accelerate that. I would like to go back to uh, what you said, Corey, uh, before in terms of the traditional, the conservative industry um, that relates to smart spaces or construction or buildings in, in general. And according to a study I remember reading a couple of uh, years ago, uh, a study by McKinsey, they put construction, the construction industry right before agriculture, which was the last in terms of the most conservative industry there is in terms of transformation and willingness to, uh, to adapt to, uh, to new changes, which of course makes your contribution even uh, more important given the fact that um, climate is changing and we see it right now, the fires in, uh, in uh, Colorado and, and across the United States, across the world actually, 
and um, also the floods in Germany and the need to reconstruct using sustainable materials, whatever that means, but in a smarter way. So I would like to take a few minutes and really go deeper into this particular industry of smart spaces, what would be the look and uh, the transformation of smart cities entail in terms of, you know, what is the process, the pr process that we'll have to, to undertake in order to get there. And um, very close associated with that as an investor, I can tell many, many, many stories as to how difficult <laughs> it is to invest in such transformative industries like uh, energy and, and uh, buildings and have to fight the regulator, the governments who are slow in adapting and adopting uh, transformation, a new regulation to support that transformation. No, absolutely. Um, and it's probably, and it's, it's not just an issue that we're facing in our time, but you could roll this back um, to Rome um, you know, 1500 years ago about putting public fountains in place so that there, there's clean water right through here or building roads coming across here with, with the infrastructure. Um, so I think cities have always represented, you know, our centers of, of commerce and population. I think 94% uh, of us live what we would deem as a city. And it's, it's important to understand, you know, the shift of what's happening, um, you know, coming off of the um, pioneering sitting program that I've been on with, with the WEF, you know, we took a, a long view of the 26 cities saying, you know, where's the population shifts happening and what would be the size of cities. And the fact is that you can't just build fresh, right? Some areas you can, but ultimately you're doing a lot of, you know, reconstruction or, you know, reestablishment of existing, you know, infrastructures. I think that the traditionally, um, you know, why they are a laggard in, in technology is that we've known how to make buildings for thousands of years and even how our modern construction is still other than, you know, moving to maybe CAD and other things, how we think about buildings and, and material sciences, it's not a lot different um, from how we contract those. The, for instance, there are building owners, there are construction managers, there are, um, you know, the suppliers across there, there's the civic engineers. Um, and these are all very difficult jobs and they do them well, right? We, we are good at building buildings and therefore it makes it harder to change why we would do things differently through here. And the margins to create buildings and the understanding of the economics of keeping those buildings um, viable, you know, what purpose do they serve? How do we keep tenants in there? How do they provide health and services and, and, and safety across there? Um, the very slim margins as we make investments, you know, a lot of buildings were challenged during COVID again to say, well, I have to put cameras in now and I have to be able to look at data and I have to have new security components to here. And it's just the reality of the world we live in right now. Um, as a matter of fact, um, when we did the New York project, you know, some of the statistics were that for the lack of tenants coming in, it takes up to three years to recover that economically if you're the building owner right through here. So, the, the, the margins are slim, but they realize that in order for those assets to be relevant, um, they have to provide better services. They have to be able to um, provide for more. So going back um, to your original question of why haven't things changed as quickly, if you think of the amount of um, players that have the built environment, 
the the shell and core designers, the um, actual construction components, the actual um, material suppliers, and then the operations themselves, they all have data. They all have different systems at this point of how they take this data. Um, often if you're doing a retrofit, the data that they thought they understood about a building isn't exactly matching up to what they had. So they will look at this and they'll say, I thought this pipe or conduit was here, or I thought this energy conduit was here, and now I've got 5G coming in. How am I going to do these things? So they want to future-proof. If they're going to do these upgrades and make the investment, they're saying, well, if I put this building in now, and I know that a building is minimally going to last 50 to 100 years in, in many cases, um, how can I future-proof? So maybe I'll put in five times as much conduit as I possibly think I'm going to need because I don't want to have to go back and do this. And technology is just changing very, very, very quickly across there. But I think the pressure which has happened now is the fact that the users of the building and the actual um, people who've created the building, the technologies that they use in their daily lives or what they do with their suppliers is much more advanced than what they're putting in their buildings themselves. And I think they're, they're realizing now that um, once those buildings um, can start being the next forefront of where technology takes place, the IoT world, the artificial intelligence world, um, it will be this huge network. It will be the largest network. And there, there's great um, economic opportunity for, for businesses and companies um, and for society. Um, and there's also a, a, a challenge. I always picture in my mind that, you know, I'll go back to the smartphone analogy. We use these phones and it's just become, you know, more powerful than any computer we would have had 20 or 30 years ago through here. Now imagine living inside of that. This is what happens when you're in a building now that the, the building environment is, is, is around you and how we interact. So I don't think we know what that means yet. And therefore it's hard. I think the other aspect, um, what we've talked about in the book is you would used to say the most important first person in coming to design a building or a city, whether it's a civic engineer, was an architect right? An architect would say, this is what the building means. This is how I build it safely. This is what it represents across there. They are still very, very important, but you probably the most important person now is the technologist, right? So how does technology play across there? How does material science come across? So I think it's um, absolutely um, imperative to understand, you know, how those are now going to work together um, through here. And, um, I think that the um, other aspect I was talking about is as we rethink our cities and as we look at where the shifts of population, not just in say the known built environments, but you know where cities in India or where cities in Africa will be taking place or how we rethink of um, Europe as things move across here um, with the union. I believe that um, populations will shift again. Um, cities will still remain to be the center of it but the buildings themselves have to deliver a much bigger promise. And it's going to be a challenge for these companies to make the transition of what does technology mean to them? Um, how do they build intelligent systems that will speak with other systems across there? Not just buildings themselves, but all the other aspects of technology that we have through here. And there are great examples of where this is taking place. Um, it's always interesting when I look at stretch you know, areas, we look at stadiums, we look at airports, um, you know, we look at large areas that say economically it's feasible to have 
where we have large ingress and egress of populations, where there's entertainment taking place or large events um, or um, higher safety needs across there. So we know we can build these facilities. We can build a space station, right? Which is a very smart thing. We can build a submarine, which is a very smart thing. How do we apply that same level of thought into our buildings across there? That's where I think we can go. Right, and the other question was, how do we get the governments to go along with what is the right thing to do within this context, which is the experience that I had in a very negative way uh, because the government doesn't understand uh, and is slow in changing. So that, that's a very important um, aspect of yeah. this, particular for, since you talked earlier before private-public partnerships, which are of mm -hmm. course important in order to aggregate uh, more capital and leverage what the government is, is willing to, uh, to give. The rest has to come from uh, um, private investors like I am. Mm -hmm. But uh, how can mm -hmm. we do this if uh, the government doesn't get, and that's true from my experience in the Western world uh, across the board. So yeah, uh, yeah. Well, a couple of points. Yeah, please. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, in our research, um, working with academic institutions, particularly Arizona State University, which I just give a public shout out uh, for all their innovative thinking as well as action. And it's not just a public private private government, it's also the academic as the third leg of the stool and where they are, they're practical and they're engaged. There's a lot of progress that we've seen happen because they're in a unique position to push things forward in a way that isn't quite so commercially driven. And yet they're also not quite as, I don't know, I'll say slow, uh, but, but differently motivated like the government. So I think that the, the, the tri-party approach we've seen work well. The other is these leagues of cities, uh, when we've worked with the, the Silicon Valleys or, or the others, there are some of those city governments that are, that are probably pretty advanced and then how they're thinking and pulling in. And there are others that might not be in these centers that are still part of these organizations and they're looking for guidance. So whether it comes from a book like ours or they're being part of those, those, um, those um, uh, leading you know, avant-garde um, pioneering small, small cities, uh, we see that network effect. And remember, let's not forget, every day, part of the population's getting older, there's a new part of the population coming in who's working, consuming or prosuming, leading, making decisions, investing. And we've seen a shift with that. Uh, like Corey said, where they're choosing to work, where they're choosing to, to purchase their goods, where they're choosing to live, what they're insisting as a citizen. So we are seeing that change. In some cases, I, I think that's accelerating, not just changing, but accelerating. And remember, we're sharing information so much now through the web, through, through internet, through being connected, and we have so much more data. Those digital uh, or the exponential technologies, I think are also hitting an inflection point. And that's why if we focus attention in a practical way, not preaching or lecturing, but in a practical way that does not ignore behavioral science, I think we're in a much better place to make these things reality. What I'd like to, to add to this, um, you know, thoughts around, around the governments is, you know, if, if we think about what motivates um, governments um, to, to, to act or, or, or not act as much um, across here, it's, it's really about economics and, and tax base, like across there and, and it's where populations reside. So I think, you know, depending on what kind of government structure, you know, whether it's a democracy or whether it's a social, you know, um, model or, or some hybrid in between there, 
there's certain levels of understanding of what services will be provided and how the government will serve you know that population but regardless of those systems it really does come down to can i have economies that are robust that provide jobs that in, you know in um, make life longer for individuals, increase the, you know, level of um, productivity. Um, and that will attract people to cities and to um, create economic centers across there. And I think one of the mechanisms that um, we've seen, you know, recently, particularly um, heavily in Europe at this point, uh, U.S. is a little bit different, we can talk about that too, is when the U.S., I'm sorry, when the European Union announced the $500 billion fund, right, to say, this is going to help towards sustainability. That suddenly became huge around the ESG investors um, to say, you know, who will get that investment and how will that credit take place and how will those investments come across there? And it became a competition. We're seeing it right now. You know, we see things in the Nordic countries saying, well, the Nordics really wants to lead Europe and what's going on. And we also have Germany saying, we really want to be a leader. And the UK is kind of on its own saying, well, we really want to be the banking systems through here. And Although there's regulatory components to the whole thing, it's kind of left up to these individual cities um, to even go beyond maybe what the government wants to say to do, to say, if you can make this work or if you can become that leader, we'll all benefit from that. So I think the government's trying to say, we will do what we can to help. We have to make sure that things are still providing the services across there so that we can continue to survive as an entity, as a country for the common good. But if cities within a country can take a leading role of investment or come up with those plans, um, they'll support it, right? So hey, that hey, competition, hey, I think, Corey, is there. You, you left out the most important thing because this is a branding aspect as well. Talk about what Pittsburgh's doing and what they've done to transform. Right. So um, I, I reside in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which, you know, if historically, if you live out beside the city and you say, well, it's, it's a steel city, it hasn't been a steel city for 30 something years. Um, but at one time, it was, you know, economically producing 80 plus percent of the steel around the world, you know, for, for close to 100 years through here. So very good economy, not great health wise. Um, but People had jobs and it was one of the largest um, communities of corporate you know, leadership through here. I think it was only behind New York and Chicago um, in, in its heyday from corporate headquarters. But over the last 30 years, it made that transition. Um, it, it had to because the industry economics changed um, at a global level. So it was a long plan, but basically the city converted over to looking at um, um, technology from a biotech and robotics because it was something we're very good at because of Carnegie Mellon University and Pitt and, and other aspects that we had and legacy of doing all of this steel work. And the other was with biotech. We had a huge um, health infrastructure uh, component. So the city was able to build an economy um, based off of that, which became very uh, robust and healthy. And at the same time, um, we had some um, real far running thinkers um, around sustainability because we had such a massive problem around pollution that the government invested a lot of money and there was a lot of research done here. So particularly, I always talk about you know, Rachel Carson as being you know, you know, one of the heroes here. So back in the 60s, she did something very controversial. She said, you know, these chemicals and what we're doing is really impacting the environment and we need to change. And that was at the time when steel was in its heyday. And that was a direct challenge to the corporations here. Um, and that's, that doesn't make sense. That's going to take our economy down. We measure by economy. 
But now it's being recognized that, you know, what she's saying is that the technologies that we have um, are capable of actually determining our destiny. So, you know, Pittsburgh is now one of the greener cities on the planet, um, and they continue to, to innovate here. Um, one of the things, um, two programs that are very interesting are taking place right now is we've become a dark city, which basically said we were going to reduce our light that happens at night that's emitted from the city by 80%. We're going to use technology. We're not going to worry about the safety of the city won't decline. The visibility of the city and how you can use services won't be there. We'll, we'll still be good, but we're not going to use that power and we're not going to pollute the sky with this. And a lot of cities around the world are looking and saying, what does a dark sky city mean? The other thing that's very interesting is, is that um, we've just set up a transportation system that is 100% off renewable energy. Um, but more important, it is a link that says the transit systems, whether they're the trains, whether they're the buses, whether they're the scooters, the bicycles, we have trams that run up and down these um, hillsides here, which are pretty unique. They are not just all running off renewable, but they're all now connected as a single ticket. So I can take any one of these um, across there and have a complete transit experience of mobility that is 100% sustainable right now, that's easy to use, and we're learning. You know, we, 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 we still, we have scooters still left on the street corners and we're trying to figure out how those work. Uh, the trains run well, the inclines still work well, but the majority of the city is doing that. The other thing that we are also doing by mandate is um, it'll probably pass within a couple of weeks is that we'll become plastic free. It's another decision that the city has made. So it's kind of those micro changes, although they don't, might sound like micro changes, doesn't mean the whole government in the United States has to do this, but as a city level, those are things that we are opting to do as a society. Wow, and that's very inspirational. And I think, yes, all cities uh, should start going in this direction. So it's been a wonderful interview. Any, any other three most important uh, thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners with, both of you? You first, Corey. Yeah, certainly. So I think that the you know, timing of, of why this book take place. You know, I said earlier about, you know, this book was just necessary as part of the process to be part of the solution, right? It, 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 it's part of the journey through here. Um, it really is the fact that um, um, sustainability is, is, is our biggest challenge out there right now. And it will be for the next 50 years, if not beyond, right? But economically, at least for the next 50 years, it, it, it has to be addressed. Secondly, is the technology is available now to have a very practical major impact through here. And also that the cultural um, readiness is there. If our governments aren't ready, the populations are, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe that will challenge some of the governments here. So, you know, the inspiration, you know, for us, at least for myself personally, and I'll let just give his own thoughts on this is what can I do now? Uh, personally, um, that will have the largest amount of impact. And, you know, my goal is that not just to have businesses and leaders look at this, but what is that generation of individuals that are in colleges right now, and even at the high school level, um, be able to say, I can have not just a career here, but I, this is what I want to do with my life. This is something where I can actually have control over this and not just say, well, this is the way things are, because they have a high interest in doing this. I think they have the intelligence for, for coming across here. And it's not 
it's not a technology wave. It's just like there's the information age. Now it's the sustainability age. And whether governments or businesses are ready for it, society is ready for it. And this generation um, will be doing this. So that's that was the big inspiration for myself. Jeff? Logos, ethos, and pathos, head, hands, and heart. We've got the science, we've got the, the purpose, and we have, I think, the will uh, and the action to do this. And there's an old saying that you cannot stop an idea whose time has come. And I think that's the point. Not only is the, time, the idea, but I think the means to do it. And it also can capture both aspirational. It isn't just a compliance drudgery thing. There's an aspirational part where there's less of negotiation. I'm not against the other side of the desk from you, Mariana, as we discussed this. We're on the same side of the desk, staring at the problem, the wicked challenge. And you don't have that a lot. Often things are seen as a zero sum game. And finally, those, those, those words that you often like to use within planetary boundaries, knowing these constraints, knowing this is bigger, uh, whether it's the clock ticking, uh, because of that, there's a sense of urgency, not desperation, but urgency that what we do matters, how we spend our time matters, how we spend our resources matter. And I think there's, it, 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 I think I can speak for Corey here. It keeps us uh, not just up at night, but gets more importantly, gets us up in the morning. And uh, the only thing I'll say about our company is uh, I do feel fortunate, very fortunate uh, to be at a company at this point that has these similar ideas. So the ability to project our influence or to make some, some impact is bigger because of that. And I wanna make the most of this precious opportunity. And again, thank you for having us on so we can share that. And if you don't get the practical sustainability from the results of our research, get it from somewhere. It's an important topic that needs to be addressed. Well, wonderful. Thank you so very much for your time and effort. And I wish you good luck with your book and uh, keep being inspirational and uh, inspired. Um, and uh, I would love to be in touch. And uh, also, where can people go and uh, find more information about your work? Well, since we led with the book and the research, you can go to emphasis.com slash practical sustainability, the book, or I'm sorry, practical sustainability book, or you could literally just type in the words because it's, it's become enough of a movement now that just the words and you get to it. It's available February 1st uh, and, you know, on all major platforms. Uh, and more importantly than that, there's an ongoing release of research. So go to the Infosys Knowledge Institute, just type that in, you know, find us. And we have a regular source or you know, microsites. Th this information is free. We're sharing it. And, and of course, there are, there are a variety of panels and, and forums where we're sharing this. It's ongoing. And most importantly, it's not the Jeff and Corey show, nor is it just about emphasis. This is a, a collection, a collaboration. We work with the UN, as Corey mentioned, closely with the World Economic Forum. Uh, we, we presented in these capacities at Davos and a variety of large and small uh, organizations and academic institutions. Uh, we just like to be a messenger and a curator and hopefully make an impact and keep the dialogue going because quite often the challenge is not that it doesn't happen, it's that people aren't aware of it and can't access it and we wanna change that. And of course you can find us you know, on LinkedIn or Twitter as well, just look up our names. Wonderful, thank you very much and uh, good luck to all of us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.